Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Kenny, and I'm a pastoral resident here. It's good to see all of you this afternoon. It's good to gather and praise God together, right? We've spent some time speaking to God through prayer and singing, and now we've come to the point in our service we're going we're gonna to hear God speak to us, which we can easily take for granted. That's a pretty amazing thing. We're going to open the Bible and we're going to hear God's message for us this afternoon. The Holy Spirit's going to give us ears to hear as well. This sermon that we're about to go through is not full of my opinions, my preferences. You didn't come here to hear all those things, but you've come to hear a message from God. We're now a few weeks into our study of the book of Jude which may be the most neglected book of the New Testament, we've been saying. And I think that might be because uh, there's lots of hard things in it. Um, we've got one of those passages today that's going to be a little bit tough. It's hard to understand sometimes. But studying the book of Jude, I think it's kind of like eating crab. Stay with me. It's tough. It requires technique. You get messy sometimes. But, oh man, when you get to that meat... It's worth it, right? It's worth the trouble. So Jude was a half-brother of our Savior, and he was also a leader in the early church, and he wrote this letter to remind Christians to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the very truths of the gospel of grace. Now, they needed to contend because some teachers had come along. These teachers claimed to be Christians, But by their actions, they twisted the gospel and ultimately denied Christ. So while this letter of Jude was written for a specific situation 2,000 years ago, it's also written for us as the people of God throughout time. And it's written to help us identify false teachers as well, because there are still false teachers today. We need to be able to identify them so that we can resist them. We need to be able to identify who is a false teacher so that we can contend for the faith and preserve the truth of the gospel in the world and for future generations. Now, you might not be a Bible nerd like I am, and you might be tempted to tune out at some point in this sermon. Like I told you, it's going to be challenging at some points, but I urge you not to tune out. Please Try not to tune out, because the job of contending for the faith is not just for pastors, it's not just for church leaders, it's not just for the really quote-unquote religious people. It's for all Christians. It's for all Christians. We're all called to contend for the faith. And God has called pastors and, and Christian teachers to equip believers for the work of ministry. And one aspect of ministry is being able to identify the true gospel versus the false gospel. So if you haven't turned there already, please open up to Jude. It's the second to last book of the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. Now, last week we were in verses five through seven, and Jesse preached through this, and it was three historical episodes about people who went off the path, so to speak, who went off the path and thereby rejected the faith because of their sin. So we're going to be looking at the next three verses today, Jude verses 8 through 10, where Jude draws the application 
from these historical stories that he'd already been talking about. He draws the application to his present day and the false teachers that he's facing. So we're going to talk a lot about words and speech today. That's going to be a major theme running through these these passages. Words reveal the heart. And given enough time, someone's true belief and who they are on the inside will inevitably come out through their words. Have you ever heard of the idea of the Freudian slip? It's got a specific name or a specific meaning in psychology, but it's named after Sigmund Freud, the famous psychologist. But more broadly in our culture, it's when you say something unintended, but people understand it to actually reveal your inner thoughts. So what comes out of your mouth is taken to be your real belief, right? Former prime minister of the UK, David Cameron, once he was trying to defend his political party's approach to taxation, and he was arguing in the House of Lords or something like that. It's on YouTube. And he was arguing that their approach to taxation was beneficial to all levels of British society. So he got up and he pounded the table in front of him, and he said, we are raising more money for the rich. Oops. One commentator called it, quote, a rare moment of honesty from the prime minister. So even in the case of apparent slips of the tongue, we have this idea, we understand that words reveal the heart. But of course, that didn't start with British politics. That idea didn't come from Sigmund Freud. Jesus said it. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And right after that, he said, the good person out of the good treasure, or out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So the point is, you can tell what's inside a person by listening to what they say. Or as a friend of mine recently put it, if you listen closely enough, people tell you who they are. If you listen closely enough, people tell you who they are. So remember, in this letter, Jude is telling us how to, re- how to um, recognize false teachers. And in this passage, he's teaching us that one way to identify false teachers is to pay attention to what they say. Pay attention to what they say. Listen closely, and they will tell you who they are. They speak words that harm others and seek to undermine God's authority. We're going to be studying verses 8 through 10, like I said, and we're going to be looking at it under four headings. I'll give those to you as we go along. But before we get there, let's read these verses and pray. So Jude 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have this time together now. We have a difficult passage in front of us. Please help me to communicate your message clearly, and please give all of us humble hearts willing to be guided by, corrected by, and encouraged by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so point number one, the slander. The slander. And in this point, we're going to see that false teachers are blasphemers and slanderers. So 
take a look at the beginning of verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also. So Jude piles up a bunch of words right at the beginning, but these are connecting words. He's connecting it to the previous section. Remember, he's applying verses 5 through 7 to his current situation. So like ancient Israel, like the rebellious angels, and like Sodom and Gomorrah, the false teachers likewise defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So let's look briefly at these at these three sins enumerated at the end of verse 8. So for one thing, the false teachers are defiling the flesh, which means they're living in some sort of sexual immorality, like the fallen angels or Sodom and Gomorrah from the previous verses. But Jude also says that they're rejecting authority. He uses a special word for authority here, in Greek, kuriates, that makes clear that they're rejecting the Lord's authority specifically. Now you can hear this if you if we, if we were reading Greek, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. And the false teachers are rejecting kuriates. So do you hear the similarity? It's specifically lordly authority, God's authority. That's what they're rejecting. So it's saying that they're refusing to listen to God's word, to God's apostles, uh, etc. They're rejecting the authority of God. And authority is going to be a theme we see running through these these verses as well. Thirdly, though, and this is important for understanding the following verses, Jude says that the false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones. So let's take that apart. So first, what does this word blaspheme mean? Now, another Greek word for you, it'll sound familiar, blasphemia. Sounds like blaspheme, right? Blasphemia. And it is speech that denigrates or defames someone else. It's speech that tears someone down. It's speech that harms, that's intended to harm somebody's reputation. You could also translate it as reviling, denigration, disrespect, or slander. The English word blasphemy has some connotations that the Greek word doesn't, so we should be aware of that. For example, for us, blasphemy always refers to something religious, right? It always refers to something religious, and it's used when someone slanders or challenges a religious authority above them. But the Greek word could be used in other contexts as well. It could just be used for slander of other people in a non-religious context. It doesn't have to refer to God. That's what I'm trying to get at. Blasphemy doesn't have to refer to God in Greek. But at the same time, I think that this is a good translation here because the false teachers are committing slander. That's what's going on. And they're undermining the authority of those they're slandering. So there's a connection between their words and authority. They're challenging the authority above them. They're rejecting authority. They're using words to harm, denigrate, tear down, undermine rightful authority. And that's what false teachers do. So these false teachers are blaspheming or slandering the glorious ones. Now we have to figure out who they are. Who are the glorious ones? Well, some people have thought the glorious ones are church leaders, which I think is kind of funny. But then again, maybe you thought, Wow, he's glorious when I walked up here. But I'm thinking, probably not. Not even my wife said that. The best interpretation here is that these are angels. You know, usually when angels show up in the Bible, they're pretty glorious, they're bright, they're intimidating. So the false teachers are slandering angels. That's what's going on here. They're slandering angels. Maybe they're thinking about how God used angels to give the law of Moses, which it says in, in the book of Hebrews, 
Maybe they're thinking, we don't like that law so much, so uh, we're going to slander those angels. But whatever the case, they were being so rebellious that they were slandering God's chosen servants, his heavenly servants, even as they claimed to be true Christians. I know. That feels pretty distant from our experience, right? I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to slander an angel. I haven't heard anybody else slander an angel. But it's important. Here's what this comes down to. If someone utters words of contempt, words of insult, false or damaging words against the things or people of God, then that's an indication that they're a false teacher. If someone utters words of intent, words of contempt against the things and people of God, that's an indication that they're a false teacher because false teachers are slanderers. They speak words that disrespect others, that harm others. They revile. They speak lies. Such slander indicates that the speaker has rejected the authority of God in their lives. So if someone shows up claiming to be a Christian teacher, yet they are a slanderer, you have a very good indication that they are likely a false teacher. But slanderers don't always come out guns blazing, right? Especially in 2023. It can be very subtle. So I think back to this video that I saw um, served up to me by the algorithm, of course, uh, on YouTube. And it was a guy who had strung together like five or six interviews with different Christian teachers. And um, there were some where I was like, oh, that's a good teacher. I, I listened to that person. And then he, then there would be 30 seconds of that one, and then it would switch to the next one, and I'm like, ooh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that person. And then 30 seconds of that, and they go to another one, and I'm like, okay, I don't understand the, the logical flow here. And then they switch back to the first one. And I'm looking at this, and just like, I'm like five minutes in, and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. Okay, maybe the YouTube description will help me, right? So I scroll down, and all that it says is, I couldn't believe what these Bible teachers were saying. That's clickbait right there. Um, I spent way too much time trying to figure out what was going on. But I came down to two options, two possibilities. Either this guy didn't understand what any of them were saying, and he was lumping them all together as heretics. Or, and I kind of think this is more likely, he was deliberately putting good and bad teachers side by side, intending to undermine the good ones by association with the bad ones, making it sound like they're all saying the same thing. But whatever the case, this is a real-life example of the subtlety of slander in 2023. People don't usually show up spewing blatant slanders unless you spend time on Twitter. More often, people use their words to do harm through implications right? Through omission, through association. But the overall effect is slanderous. The overall effect is tearing down, confusing, pushing us toward lawlessness. So we need to watch out for people like this who are going to use their words as weapons to try to tear down true Christians and true doctrine. So one sign of false teachers is that they're slanderers. They seek to harm people with their words, particularly in an effort to reject their authority. But we need to apply this to our personal lives, too. We need to admit that because that the reason that there's such a uh, 
preponderance of slander on the internet and the Christian internet is because we love consuming slander, don't we? We love the drama. We love the Twitter takedowns. We love it when a pastor calls out a different leader from the pulpit. It makes us feel better about ourselves, doesn't it? Because, you know, if if uh, they're calling out some other Christian leader for their sin, I don't have to think about my sin, right? We'd rather shine the spotlight on somebody else's sin. And we can convince ourselves, I just have a zeal for right doctrine, right? I just care about the truth. But we can get sinful satisfaction out of the takedowns, can't we? At least I can. And even beyond that, we can be slanderers too, right? It's so easy to use our words against others, whether to blast them or just to chip, chip, chip away. But Scripture clearly teaches us that we can't use our words this way, brothers and sisters. Ephesians 4.29 is worth quoting and memorizing. Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ouch. When we grade ourselves against Scripture, we see how far we fall short, don't we? We need to reject slanderous talk in our own lives as well and commit to giving grace through our words. So before we move on, though, I I need to clarify a couple of things. So just a couple of things I want to point out before we move on to our next point. First, I don't want to deny, and I don't deny, that even true Christians sometimes sin with their tongues, right? If you read in James chapter 3, he calls the tongue a world of unrighteousness, a burning fire. He basically says, if you don't struggle with your words, you're basically perfect. You know? So that's realistic. Christians struggle with their words. Even Christians can sinfully slander someone else. Just because you've slandered somebody before doesn't make you a false believer or a false teacher or something like that. But what I'm saying is every false teacher is a slanderer, but not everyone who slanders is a false teacher. Does that make sense? Every false teacher will be a slanderer, but not everyone who has slandered is a false teacher necessarily. But I'm also not saying we need to be nice all the time. I'm not saying we need to be nice all the time. not saying we need to be soft or squishy or something. Because if you read ahead in Jude, there's some stuff that he says that's pretty harsh. It's harsh. But Jude's aim isn't verbal abuse. Remember, we're talking about aims here. His aim is not to harm, tear down these false teachers. His aim is to communicate how dangerous they are. I think to a time... When we were out at, uh, it was just in our front, in our front yard, I think, uh, my son was two years old at the time and there were cars going by on the street and I was about 30 feet away from him and I saw him just running full tilt toward the road. So yeah, I'm 30 feet away. There's nothing that I can do to grab him or anything. So all that I did was just yell, stop. And he stopped all right, but then he turned around and looked at me and just went, and just cried, you know, because he thought daddy was mad at him. But I wasn't mad at him. I was trying to warn him. I was trying to warn him because it was dangerous. My intent was to rescue him. So that's what's going on with Jude. 
He's using these harsh words because he wants us to understand the danger. So all that being said, this verse calls us to examine our speech. We need to ask ourselves, is our pattern of life, is our speech more like the slanderous teachers or is it more like Ephesians 4.29? Are we slandering or are we building up? We need to ask ourselves that. So we see that false teachers are slanderers in point one. This brings us to point number two, the source of authority, the source of authority. And we see here that the false teachers, their source of authority is not God. It's not God. We're still in verse eight. We skipped over a part of it. Uh, if you look back at verse eight, you see this short phrase, relying on their dreams, relying on their dreams. So these false teachers are living in sin and in these ways that they're, that they're talking about, but they're pointing to their dreams to legitimate what they're doing. They're relying on their dreams. Maybe some of us have made decisions based on dreams that we've had. That's not necessarily wrong because according to the Bible, God does sometimes communicate with people through dreams. Dreams can be a means of divine revelation. If you think back to what you know of the Bible, Joseph took Mary and Jesus down to Egypt to avoid King Herod because of a dream. Because of a dream, the Apostle Paul turned around and went to Macedonia so according to scripture, a dream can be an, uh, from God. A dream can be an instruction from God. But notice that really, really, really important word, can. A dream can be from God. It might be from God, but it's not God's normal way of communicating. Dreams aren't always from God. And actually, the Bible warns us. It records times when false prophets, relying on their dreams, tried to turn people away from God. To take one example, you can just listen to what God says through Jeremiah, the prophet in Jeremiah 23, 25 to 27, Jeremiah 23, 25 to 27. This is what it says. God speaking through Jeremiah. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying what I have dreamed. I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams. So do you hear that? The false prophets are using their dreams for authority to try to get people to forget the real God. And because the end result of these dreams is anti-God, you know that the dreams didn't actually come from God. And the same thing is going on here in Jude. Jude sees that the false teachers reject God's law. They blaspheme God's angels. So when he sees the fruit, Jude can conclude that the root is bad. The dreams are bad. These dreams are not from God. Oh gosh, this was probably about more than 10 years ago now. I had a friend who was getting into home gardening and he hadn't done it before. And, uh, like any self-respecting uh, gardener, you know, soon, like recently out of college, he didn't want to spend any more money than he had to. So he didn't go and buy seeds at Home Depot or something. He just took the vegetables that he was eating and, took, you know, set aside a couple of seeds and he was going to plant those. So he had these big, beautiful bell peppers. 
And he was so excited. He was telling me, I'm going to plant seeds from these bell peppers. I'm going to have my own bell peppers. So sure enough, he did it. He saved those seeds. And, you know, I don't know how long it takes the plant to grow, but the plant started to grow. He was getting excited because it was about to start bearing fruit. But then what did he find? But that they were tomatoes. I don't know how that happened. I don't know if he mixed it up or if there's some weird, like, genetically modified thing going on here. He thought that he planted bell pepper seeds, but these were not bell peppers. These were tomatoes. But that tomato fruit proved that those weren't bell pepper seeds. You can tell what the root was, what the seed was, by the fruit that's born. So also, if a supposed God-given dream tells you to sin, it's not from God. If it tells you to sin, it's not from God. It could just be your own flesh. It could be last night's pizza. It could be a deceitful spirit. It could be from a deceitful spirit. First Timothy 4.1 says that some professing Christians will be led away and tricked by deceitful spirits. So the source of that dream could be demonic. It's not necessarily from God. Now, maybe you're not somebody who would make a decision based on a dream. But how many times have we made decisions because we felt led to do something or because God seemed to be opening the door or because we had peace about it. Now, in the same way with dreams, that's not necessarily bad, but that's not all you need. Those feelings can be helpful, but they're not necessarily from God. You still need to test these impressions and thoughts against God's reliable revelation in his word, his clear and unchanging revelation of scripture with the help of your church community. And Mormon missionaries are infamous, notorious for for this sort of thing. I don't know if you've spent any time with Mormon missionaries. Uh, back when we lived in, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, my wife and I uh, invited some Mormon missionaries into our, into our house after meeting them, Elder Wyatt and uh, Elder Josh. Um, and they were, they were nice guys, enjoyed talking to them. And you're, we were sitting across the table from them and they had their Bibles out on the table and they were just going on and on about how they loved the Bible and telling us about their quiet times and their, their own personal reading plans and all of that. They have high praise for the Bible. But when I pressed them, they said, well, yeah, we like the Bible and it's true insofar as it's translated correctly. Okay. That sounds, that sounds okay. Maybe, but I kept pressing and I'm glad that I did because they, they said, well, you know, it's true as far as it's translated correctly, but, uh, some things have been taken out of it. Some truths have been removed from it. Uh, and Joseph Smith restored those truths, basically. So they believe that there was, they call it the great apostasy of after the apostles, that the whole church fell away. And basically the true faith was lost for 1800 years. And they needed Joseph Smith to, and the angel uh, who revealed things to him uh, to come and restore those truths. That's what they believe. So, They don't really believe the Bible, but what they're going to say, even though this conversation, you know, did not go so well for the Mormon missionaries, before they left, what they really wanted us to do was they said, 
just pray about the, about the Book of Mormon. Pray about the Book of Mormon and ask God whether it's true. Ask God whether it's true. And, you know, my wife and I looked at each other, our other friend who was there too, and we just said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, what, what the Mormon missionaries wanted is they wanted us to pray and they said, look for a burning in the bosom. And that's what they call it, a burning in the bosom, a feeling in your heart that it's true. But we said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, a feeling, we can be deceived by a feeling. Uh, we don't want to open the door potentially to demons who would try to convince us otherwise. But they try to make you or get you to make a decision based on your feeling. So beware because such feelings and such supposed direct words from God for you in your specific situation, these are the bread and butter of false teachers. Wouldn't you and I love to hear a specific word from God for our situation, for the big decision that we're facing? And false teachers are all too happy to provide that word. But when a false teacher is telling you, God wants you to do this, what they're trying to do is they're trying to circumvent your process of discernment. They're trying to circumvent the Holy Spirit. They're afraid of what's going to happen when you open your Bible and pray to God and talk with your pastors and your church community about what you're supposed to do. They're trying to go around that. But God gives us an easy way to tell whether such supposed divine revelation is really from him. Because if a dream or feeling contradicts the Bible, it's not from God. If it contradicts the Bible, it's not from God. Because God's revelation is never going to contradict itself. God isn't going to say one thing today and another thing tomorrow. He's not going to whisper one thing to this Christian and whisper another thing to that Christian. Because God is a God of truth. God is a God of truth. So we need to not just say the Bible is our authority, but to live as if it really is. Because it is. It is true. As Jesus reminded the religious leaders in John 10, Scripture cannot be broken. It's reliable. It won't contradict itself. And as Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, familiar words for many of us, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every good work. We don't need dreams. We don't need dreams. We don't need dreams to make our decisions. We have God's word, God's spirit, and the community of God's people to give us all the wisdom we need. So if a dreamer points to their dreams to justify sin, you know that those dreams aren't from God. So we've seen that false teachers are slanderers, and we see that they base their judgments in a wrong source of authority. That brings us to point number three. Point number three, submission to God's authority. Submission to God's authority. Here we see that the true servant of God submits to God's authority in everything, even in their words. The true servant of God submits to God's authority in everything, even in their words. Let's look at verse 9 again. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So now that Jude has established that these false teachers are slanderers and that their supposed authority is rooted in their dreams and not in God, in verse 9, he provides an illustration like any good preacher would. 
to try to show how a true servant of God relates to authority with their words. So whereas the false teachers reject God's authority and slander God's servant, God's true servants submit to God's authority in everything, even in their speech. Now, the only problem with all of this is that Jude uses a story that we know nothing about. And uh, Preaching 101 says, you know, use illustrations that your people understand. You know, if I came up here and made a cricket illustration or something, like cricket the sport, uh, you wouldn't know what I'm talking about, and honestly, neither would I. Uh, but Jude gave an illustration, and it must have been the case that his readers knew what he was talking about. They knew this story. But we have to do a little bit extra work to understand what's going on. So we're going to ask a few questions to help us get there to understand. So first, where is this story from? We don't know. It's not in the Bible. It may have been recorded in a book called The Testament of Moses or The Assumption of Moses, which was just a book written uh, in ancient times about the end of Moses's life. I think the most helpful way to think about it is, I think it's like a historical novel. Have you ever read a historical novel? It's got true events, but it also weaves in like embellished uh, embellished stories. It provides dialogue when we don't know what the real characters said. It weaves together true events with embellished ones or additional ones. Now, this could easily trip us up, but let's let's not let it trip us up. Jude quoting from outside the Bible shouldn't cause us any trouble. Paul sometimes quoted from Greek or Roman authors, and that didn't mean that he thought those were inspired. Didn't mean he thought that we needed those philosophers' books in the Bible. So also Jude quoting from the Testament of Moses or whatever it is doesn't necessarily mean he thought the whole thing was inspired by God. But beyond that, we should expect that sometimes major events about Bible people would get written down and preserved accurately even outside the Bible, right? Because that's just how history works. Sometimes things are written down and they're written down accurately. But we know that since God inspired Jude to refer to this episode and God's word is always true, we know that at least in this case, the Testament of Moses got it right. The Testament of Moses accurately recorded a real event between the archangel Michael and the devil. So that's where the story is from as far as we can tell. Who are the characters? There's Moses, but he's not really a character. He's just a body. Deuteronomy 34 says that God himself buried Moses, so no human knows where he's buried. But that's actually not that important to the story. A more important character here is Michael. Michael. So while there are innumerable angels, the Bible only tells us the names of two. Gabriel, who spoke with the prophet Daniel and announced the birth of Jesus, and then Michael. Michael shows up in Daniel too, and he shows up in the book of Revelation. And every time, except here, he's engaged in battle. He's leading an army of angels, basically. And as an archangel, not just as a regular old angel, he seems to be the chief of angels. He's the five-star general of God's army. He seems to be the leader. And you know what that means? He's probably, he's probably the mightiest created being in the universe. And I'd never really thought about that before this sermon. He's probably the mightiest, most glorious created being in all the universe, the leader of God's armies. So I would say, you probably don't want to mess with this guy. 
The final being involved here is the devil or Satan. He's the main bad guy in the Bible, a created angel who rebelled against God's authority and continues to try to undermine God's plans, even though he can't ultimately resist God. So now that we understand the characters, let's talk about the event. At some point, we don't know when, Michael and the devil were contending and disputing about the body of Moses. Maybe they were arguing over possession of it. Who knows? But they were arguing it was a verbal battle, not a physical one. The important point is that when Michael had a chance to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, he chose not to do so, but instead said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. So what's going on here? Some have suggested that because of this verse, we should show respect even to the devil. The Rolling Stones might agree we should have some sympathy for the devil, right? But I don't think so. Nowhere else in the Bible, nor in Judaism or Christianity, anywhere, nowhere, nobody says we're supposed to show deference to the devil. So that's a pretty unlikely meaning here. We need to remember the key word. Why did Jude bring this up anyway? The key word which prompted the illustration is blasphemy. That's the connection. And this gives us the answer. So here's the problem that Michael avoided. The thing he dared not presume to do. Slander the devil. He dared not slander the devil. He dared not try to harm him with his words and thereby assert his own authority over the devil. Think about it. Michael could have got up in all his glorious brilliance, spread his wings, however many of those he has, we don't know, and shouted in a thunderous voice, not today, Satan. Or, I rebuke you, Satan, and, you know, piled up the epithets. But instead, he recognized that as God's servant, he has no right to slander anybody. Michael isn't the master. God is. If Michael had passed judgment on the devil, it would be like a prosecutor climbing up the judge's bench, grabbing the gavel and saying, guilty. In a sense, for Michael to pass judgment on the devil on his own authority would have been a blasphemy against God too, because he would have been usurping God's role as the judge. But the only authority Michael has is that which is given to him by God. So he said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. There's one more detail here, though, that I want you to see that sharpens the point even more. You may have heard um, what what the name Satan means. Do you remember? Satan, accuser. The name Satan means accuser. Well, do you know what devil means? Devil, and the Greek word behind it, diabolos, means slanderer slanderer. So Michael refused to slander the slanderer. He refused to play the devil's game. He knew his place. He refused to do battle with his words on his own authority. And instead, as a faithful servant of God, he submitted to God's authority to judge, even in what he said, even in his speech. And this is pretty huge. We need to recognize this. If anyone had the right to slander someone else, It would have been Michael, the greatest created being in the universe. If anyone deserved to be slandered, it was the devil. Yet Michael deferred to God. 
No servant of God has the right to harm another with their words. No servant of God can pass ultimate judgment except for God. So just as as slander can reveal a false teacher, you can also tell a true servant of God by their refusal to slander. So if even Michael deferred to God's authority, so also should we. If he wouldn't even slander Satan, so also should we completely reject such willful words. In a, in a phrase, we should be like Mike. As slanderous words reveal a heart that has rejected God's authority, so also humble words that defer to God reveal a heart that submits to God's authority. So what about you? Do you submit to and defer to the Lord's authority even in what you say? Now, those of us with children need to hear these words. We never have the right to insult or harm our children with our words in an attempt to get them to bend to our authority. Instead, we need to help them recognize God's authority over their lives and how any authority we have as parents comes from God and must be used in a God-honoring way. The parents need to know that. We can also be tempted to slander and assume our own authority within the church, right? I'm sure that almost everybody in this room knows about a church that was torn apart by slander, by people asserting their own authority or seniority or whatever it may be in an attempt to push the church one way or the other. But a true servant of God doesn't assert their own authority, doesn't slander. Instead, they submit in all things, including their speech, to God's authority. But there's so many professing Christians who are all too eager to go to battle, right? All too eager to condemn other professing Christians. They're trying to steal the judge's gavel. A love for disputing can masquerade as a love for truth. People will paint with a broad brush and throw fellow Christians under the bus for different beliefs that are by no means heretical. We need to remember that Christians can differ on secondary and tertiary issues and they can both still be Christians. And some of these are things that are very important to us, right? But we can all still be Christians. So resist the temptation to make everything a first order doctrine. When the people in the Roman church were despising each other over their different but deeply held convictions about Sabbath keeping and kosher laws, Paul asked them in Romans 14:4, "Who are you to judge another man's servant?" Why was passing judgment so bad? Well, Paul says, because God has welcomed him. God has welcomed that brother or sister. Who are you to slander them, to reject them, to despise them? We are not the judge. But all that being said, there are times when we need to take a stand, right? What about those times where you do need to take a stand and confront a dangerous claim? How do you be like Mike the archangel? and submit to the Lord's authority instead of usurping his authority? It's a hard question to answer in the abstract, but when I've seen it done well, the Christian keeps an even tone, refuses to engage in ad hominem direct personal attacks, and simply explains what Scripture says. You know, I am not the hero of every story that I tell, and I've done this wrong plenty of times, but I think by God's grace I did this well at least once. So I think back to a time when I was in high school, a gangly, uh, awkward sophomore, something like that, 16 years old. 
there was a student-led club, a Christian club, at the high school. And it's student-led, which, you know, it's high school. That's going to be its own adventure. Um, but it was student-led, and there was eight of us who were on a leadership team. And the people from, or the people in the Christian club, we were all from different kinds of churches in the area. It was a public school. And uh, we were responsible for inviting speakers to come speak to the to the club. We were in, responsible for leading worship, choosing songs and stuff. And if I remember correctly, we had recently invited a speaker who gave a sermon who rightly preached the necessity of Christ for salvation. But at this leadership meeting, there was an, an older student there. He was one of the worship leaders. He was a senior and I was a sophomore. He was well-liked. He was popular. He'd been a part of the club for a long time, and he said something to this effect. He was like, guys, we can't have any sermons like that. No more sermons like that. People aren't going to come back. This needs to be a place for everyone. God is a God of love, and Jesus welcomed everyone. And I just can't accept that message that that pastor was preaching. I can't accept that God would send someone like Gandhi to hell just because he wasn't a Christian. The silence was palpable, and uh, I looked across the circle at my friend, and uh, I think our eyes were saying, who's going to say something? <laughs> who's going to say it? But we needed to say something. And finally, uh, I spoke up and I just said, hey, the Bible is clear. No amount of good works can earn you salvation, not even if you're Gandhi. If he didn't put his faith in Jesus, there's no way he could be saved. Now, that worship leader wasn't convinced ultimately, I don't think, but uh, the rest of the group was, um, and they were reminded that we needed to stick to what God said. So I definitely don't get that right all the time. In my flesh, you know, I want to slam dunk and posterize uh, false teachers too. Um, but in the final tally, you know, quiet, consistent jump shots, those are going to be just as effective, if not more so. Incidentally, it's passages like Jude 9, like Romans 14, that have shaped Zoe's approach to doctrinal controversy. You're not going to see any of the pastors get up here and go off on a screed or go off on a personal attack. This isn't from a failure of nerve. We're still going to talk about right and wrong. We're not afraid to call something orthodox or heretical, but we're trying to submit to God's authority as judge. So Jude brings in this illustration about Michael and the devil to show us how true Christians live when it comes to their respect of God's authority and the words they speak. You can tell a true servant of God by what they won't say as well. So that brings us to our final point more briefly. Point number four, spurning God's authority. Spurning God's authority. The slanderous false teacher ultimately spurns God's authority and unfortunately will be destroyed in the judgment. The slanderous false teacher spurns God's authority and will be destroyed in the judgment. And this is heavy, but we need to talk about it. Let's look at verse 10 again. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So in this last verse, Jude applies the Michael illustration to the false teachers, but he starts with the word but right? Because it's a contrast. We know this. It's a contrast. The false teachers are opposite of Michael. 
And Jude says that these false teachers blaspheme or slander all that they do not understand. And this is simply the logical conclusion of their rejection of God's authority. This makes sense. Because they reject God's authority, they refuse to learn. There's no way they're going to make any progress in understanding sin, grace, salvation, repentance, etc. Instead of asking questions to make progress in understanding, they slander these truths instead, the things they don't understand. And this is really common, even in our day, right? Maybe you're visiting today and you're not a Christian. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. I'm really glad that you're here to hear the word of God, to be among God's people, to experience a worship service. But if that's you, I need to warn you as well. There will be things about Christianity that you do not understand yet. You do not understand the first time around. Now, you might have legitimate questions like, how can a good God allow suffering in the world? Or how can God be in control of everything and yet humans still bear responsibility for their decisions? Or how could the Bible be completely true? Those are good questions. And I'd love to talk to you later about that. But here's the danger. Lots of people don't wait for answers before they arrive at their chosen conclusion. Those legitimate questions can become illegitimate assertions, like, I can't accept that a good God would allow suffering, or God's sovereignty and human responsibility are irreconcilable, or the Bible can't be true because it's a historical document, whatever it may be. But if you make such a move, you're being like these slanderous false teachers. You're being like these false teachers who slander what they don't understand. You don't have ears to hear. You're not open to God's authority. You've already made your judgment. But here's a good thing. God isn't afraid of your questions. There are good answers to these questions. And if you refrain from jumping to conclusions and sincerely seek out answers, I'm confident you're going to get some good answers. But instead of making spiritual progress, these false teachers spurned God's authority and slandered what they don't understand. But you see there's two categories of things here. Look back at verse 10. It's not only that they slander the things they do not understand, but they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So what's that about? Jude seems to be calling back to his earlier comments, verse 4, verse 8, about how false teachers pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and how they defile the flesh. So in giving themselves over to bodily indulgences like sexual immorality or other things, they're uncontrolled by God's authority. And Jude's saying, you're basically acting the same as animals. However, I think it's likely that, that these false teachers are also understanding certain aspects of the Christian message only instinctively. Maybe they're saying, hey, you know, Paul says Christ is the end of the law so we can live however we want. Those moral laws that God gave, you know, those are just given by those party pooper, stingy angels. You know, we don't need to listen to that law. We're in Christ now. We're totally free. Let's live it up. And you can kind of see the logic, right? But Paul dealt with people who said similar things in Romans 6. He, and they were asking, should we sin more so that God gives us more grace? And we all know the answer in the, no way. You've misunderstood the gospel if you think you should sin more so that you get more grace. Christ died to free you not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. 
a basic instinctual understanding of Christianity is no understanding of Christianity at all. And it will lead you into dangerous territory. That's what Jude says. In verse 10, Jude makes clear that the end of this is destruction. It's destruction. These false teachers think they're so wise. They proudly slander true Christians, the true faith, even the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, they will be judged by God on the day of judgment. Even today, there's a category of false teacher who doesn't teach straight-up heresy, but simply tries to lead you away from God's authority. There are false teachers who will say the right things, but they don't want you to rely on God. They substitute themselves or common sense or reason or logic or gut feelings as the test of what's right or wrong. But the problem is that common sense is sometimes wrong. Sometimes our gut is wrong. Sometimes our instincts are anti-Christian. It makes logical sense to love your friends and hate your enemies, right? But what did Jesus have to say about that? So watch out when a Christian teacher is only appealing to your feelings of disgust or common sense instead of God's word. Now, if, if you're believing the things you hear in church because they line up with your preferences or with your instincts or traditional morality and not because they line up with God's word, then be careful because that's a situation in which a false teacher can come in, can creep in and lead you astray. So don't spurn God's authority. Set yourself under his word, understood in the context of your local church community. This is God's appointed means of protection from false teaching, the word and the church. The stakes are high because our eternal destinies are at play. God's righteous judgment is something that we need to keep in mind as we talk about God's authority and false teachers. Because, right, the wages of sin, what we earn by our sin, is death. God is right to punish us for breaking his laws and for failing to worship him as he deserves. And because we're all sinners, our default destination is hell. We need to understand that. But we also need to understand the good news, right? We understand the bad news and the good news. God, because of his great love and grace, has made a way for anyone and everyone to be saved, to escape that judgment if they only turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Jesus perfectly obeyed God in his life, died as a criminal on the cross to take our punishment upon himself, and then he rose from the dead three days later to give us eternal and abundant life. So even if you've been a slanderer or if you've rejected God's authority in the past, God not only invites you, but he calls you right now through these words to repent, to turn away from your sin, to come to him in humility, leave that old life behind and receive forgiveness for your sins. If you've not yet received Christ, please do so. I urge you to do so today. Escape the destruction that is coming for sinners. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and find healing and forgiveness and the good life in him. Wrapping up then, we've seen that in these, te- in these verses, Jude is teaching us how to identify false teachers. He says, pay attention to what they say. False teachers blaspheme and slander. They speak from the wrong source of authority. In contrast, God's true servants submit to the Lord's authority in their words. 
But unfortunately, false teachers often persist in spurning God's righteous authority, and for that, they're going to face God's judgment. But for us as Christians, let's forsake using our words to harm one another, okay? Brothers and sisters, let's turn away from that. Let's submit to the Lord's authority as the judge, even in what we say. And in that way, we're going to be like Mike, but more importantly, like Christ. Let's close with 1 Peter 2. Listen to what Peter says about Christ. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Here it is. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for these words from our brother Jude. They're also your words intended for us. What a good reminder for us to not only watch out for the subtleties of false teachers, but to avoid being slanderers like them in any way ourselves. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died for our sins, including our sins of slander, so that we could become your children and live lives of righteousness righteousness by grace. So please give us your grace and your help to set our hope on you and persevere to the end. We need it, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.